Good morning. Let's, uh, we're going to be looking again at dystopian fiction and film. This will be the fourth installment and the final installment of this four-part series that I've been doing in the Dean's class. So let's pray first, and then we'll talk some more about it. Dear Lord God, we thank you for your hand at work in the world and at work in our lives. And we ask now that you would cause them to merge, that you would give us your eyes to see and understand um, the texts of our culture, the books and films that are out there, um, that though they might not explicitly say your name, they still point to you in some way. So use these, this time now and this exploration of this film to point us to you and to your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask. Amen. So if you are not aware, if you're joining, joining in for the first time this Sunday and have not been to the other three Sundays, that is fine. I'm going to do a quick little review, and I'm so sorry for the rest of you. But um, looking at this, uh, some of you might not have realized this is technically a joint youth and adult class. So if you've been scratching your head and saying, Deborah, why are you looking at this? And that's part of it, is that we've been encouraging the youth to come to the dean's class and look at a topic that they also might be interested in. So first off, um, what is dystopia? Well, even just the word dystopia, dys is um, something bad or abnormal, and topia is a place. So we see that dystopias are bad places, something where something has gone horribly wrong in the world. And when we see it in fiction, um, we, a lot of fiction throughout the 20th century has been dystopian fiction. And now we find that this fiction has become um, really interesting to the youth in our country. And so there have been um, dystopian novels that have followed one after another that have been torn through, that are bestsellers, that everyone's reading, and now Hollywood's gotten smart and they're making them into movies so they can make money off of them. Well, um, so if we're looking at dystopia in terms of these um, recent, the novels of the 20th century, these recent novels and films that are intriguing our youth, then we would define, I've been arbitrarily defining dystopia as a futuristic, controlled and controlling society walled off, but barely, from chaos. There's that element of control and then that also element of a, a seeming order that actually barely masks disorder, where there are privileges for a few, but not for many. Um, and so when we've, um, when we've looked at dystopias, I've also talked about utopias as the opposite of a dystopia. And we're going to talk a little bit about that some more. Utopias, the word, the idea has gone back for centuries, back even to Plato, that idea of how can we construct the best society ever. When you think about a utopia, it's not just perfection for me as an individual in my life and my world, although we're going to talk about that today, but also looking at the perfect society, trying to create the perfect society. And so um, remember that in my first, if you were in my first class, one of the things I tried to show you a film clip that would display what a utopia is like. And if you remember, I said, well, there actually aren't any because film is driven by conflict. Conflict is not perfect. So there are no utopian films that are truly utopian. But instead, do you remember what I showed you? I showed you a beer ad. Sorry, in church I showed you a beer ad, and I showed you a car ad, because there's something about our television commercials that proclaim a utopia. They are trying to get us to buy the product 
by casting this vision of the perfect life that we will have if only we drink Michelob Ultra, right? If only we bought the Bentley, then we would have the perfect life. Um, but so we're going to talk some more about this perfection and this, um, this striving for perfection. So we looked at young adult fiction in particular, and why is it that it is on both of our radar screens, both youth and adults, and why read some of this fiction as an adult? I've asked, I've taken surveys about who's read any of these. For today, who has read our book for today, The Giver? Have any of you read it? Or I think you can raise your hand if you've had a child read it. Yeah, it's often, yeah, it's often, um, set up for schools. It's required reading for a lot of schools. But why read these books as an adult? What could be gained for us as adults? It's sort of, some people said, well, isn't that reading below your reading level, Deborah? Well, yes. There's something to be gained from having a restful, relaxing vacation read that, um, that you can just breeze through, but that is still thought-provoking. And these books are intensely thought-provoking, which is one of the reasons why I'm teaching on them. The other thing, too, is if you've ever read anything on the adult bestseller list, they're not the cleanest books, are they? <laughs> There's something great about young adult fiction. It is clean. It is really clean, and it's really thought-provoking because they really are trying to engage the minds of the youth, trying to bring out this thoughtfulness and mindfulness. So those are good reasons. If you were thinking, well, Deborah, I would never read these books, there's, there's a, an argument for why maybe you could read them. So we've looked at Divergent. The, the second week we looked at the Divergent trilogy by Veronica Roth. A little tidbit, Veronica Roth is a Christian, and that whole trilogy is, is infused with Christian themes even though she is not explicit about them being Christian in her book. Then the next trilogy we looked at last week was the famous Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins, and two of those movies have come out, and those are incredibly popular, aren't they? They're, they're really good reads. This week, though, we are looking at a quartet of books for readers that are slightly younger. This is it's officially sixth grade reading level, but often uh, readers as young as age eight will read them. But I read, I read the first book, the one that they're making into a movie. They're making The Giver is the first of these four books in a quartet. And they're written by Lois Lowry, who is a well-known young adult author. And um, in looking at these books, I think I read that first book on, on an airplane. It was a domestic flight. I read the whole book on the airplane. But there's something so satisfying about that. Today, I've read a whole book. Um, so if you want a little ego boost, that could be helpful. Um, that came out, that book came out in 1994, and Lois Lowry then could be said to be the first to introduce youth to the dystopian genre. And we're going to look at, I'm going to show you a, um, a trailer for this first movie that comes out August 15th. Uh, but she really paved the way, and you can see that. If you were to read it, you would see some of the ways she paved the way for the Hunger Games, for Divergent. So in this quartet of books, they're not necessarily sequels, but they're companion novels. You see a series of utopian villages and communities that are isolated from each other and insulated and that are littered around a post-apocalyptic landscape. So in the first three books, you see three different communities in this landscape that are totally separate from each other, but that have one string of connection that you usually don't find out about until the end of the book. But we're going to look at the trailer for the first movie, which, um, if I can get my mouse. 
So this is a movie that um, Jeff Bridges apparently bought the rights to this book long ago. It came out in 94, right? So people have been itching to make it into a movie for a long time. He bought the rights, and if you've read the book, he only finally just got the funding to be able to make it. So that's an important piece of information. Interesting now with all the popularity of The Hunger Games was possible. And it doesn't have a lot of action in the book. The book is very thoughtful and sort of slow, even though fast-paced. And so it's interesting, even if you've read the book, even in the trailer, you'll see that they've created some more action for the, for the um, big screen. From great suffering came a solution. Communities. Injective. Serene, beautiful places where disorder became harmony. Absolutely. Do you get to fly the edge? Oh yeah. What's past that? Don't know. I'm not allowed to fly past that. Let's go. It's against the rules, Jonas. They're called books. Hello? My name is... I know who you are. Oh yeah, the giver. When the elders need guides, I provide wisdom using memories of the past. Our world is different. There was more. What's more? Fred, you'll see them all in time. All colors, all differences. Our people chose to do away with emotions. Those warning injections take them away. When people have the freedom to choose, they choose wrong. Tomorrow morning, let's get your injection. You know what I'm asking. You feel? I'm not usually like this. I'm surprised you're not more worried about him. I wasn't. Bring up Jonas's activities. You should quit it. You should know better than anyone. The way things look and the way things are are very different. Watch. That's my father. There is no way for me to prepare you for things additional things that you're like, that wasn't in the book, but that's okay, um, because they need to push forward the plot. So in this post-apocalyptic futuristic society, they've reconstructed themselves following war by eliminating seasons, racial diversity, reproduction, emotions, memory, and choice in order to promote what they perceive to be a more well-balanced and ordered community. There is an exaltation of sameness and production. They are efficient. They are scientific. Children are farmed, basically. Life is controlled by rules. Um, you are told who you will marry. 
and marriage is only for the purpose of raising children, you are told what your lifelong job will be at age 12. And that's where we find the hero is leading up to the ceremony where he'll be told what his job will be for the rest of his life. And his job will be to be the receiver. And it turns out that the receiver in this dystopian, utopian, they think it's a utopia, but it's actually a dystopia, in this community, the receiver holds all of the emotions, all of the memory of the whole community. So only the receiver remembers the past, the war and the pain and the suffering, but also all of the true joys and pleasures of life, the community, the true community of family. All of those things are kept only by the receiver. And the community basically um, committed this responsibility to this person long ago because they decided they didn't want the heartache and the pain of having to remember everything. They wanted to anesthetize themselves, and yet they had the wisdom to realize that if they completely forgot their past, then they would not be able to make right decisions about the future. And so they retained one person who possessed all the memories of the past, and so he is the community advisor. So they talk about memory and wisdom. Do you remember that from 1984, that there they tried to erase the past through the changing of the written word, through erasing the written word and rewriting the written word? Well, here it's not about the written word. It's mysteriously, magically about these memories, preventing the whole community from having this memory. Um, but there is that thought about pain um, and memory creating wisdom, which is an interesting thought. I'm going to show you another clip. This is really a little featurette, and you'll get to hear from Lois Lowry, who's the book's author. We experience life through our five senses. But what if everything you ever thought, everything you ever knew, was just the surface of what lies beyond. Thank you. 
So a few things about that clip. You see Lois Lowry talking about memory. She talks in an interview about how her art, as an artist, how did this story come to her? A lot of writers talk about the stories they have to write that present themselves to them. And she said that this one, her father was close to death, and she was... Um, there's that point in your life where you want to receive everything that the older generation has to give. You want to remember all the things. You want to ask them about what was it like in your childhood, and there's that sense of urgency about that. And so while she was doing that with her father, the idea for this world in this book came to her. So, um, so that was her way in as an artist. We also saw in that clip that questioning of reality. That's a theme throughout dystopian fiction and film, isn't it? That the hero questions the reality that's been given to him from beyond. And isn't that something, doesn't it make sense that this would be something that teens would be interested in? Questioning reality, observing potential hypocrisy, seeking to make risky choices on their own um, to start anew. Like you can see why, um, why this would be something that teens would be interested in. It was, um, the themes, though, are somewhat disturbing. Themes of euthanasia, suicide, um, sexual awakening alluded to at puberty. These are things that in 1994 caused this book to be the second most banned book after Harry Potter. Um, but it was banned by a lot of American schools. And one of the things that's so interesting is in her response to this banning of her book, the author said, I think banning books is a very, very dangerous thing. It takes in a, away an important freedom because it's an attempt to control not your own child but other people's children. Rather than saying, I don't want my child reading it, you're trying to control and say, I don't want any child reading it. She says, the world portrayed in The Giver is a world where choice has been taken away. It is a frightening world. Let's work hard to keep it from truly happening. Isn't that interesting? She saw in the banning of her book almost um, vestiges of this world that she had created in the book. Um, and that is one of the things, the negative themes, and this is something about all three of these series, Divergent and uh, Hunger Games and The Giver, some of the critiques are the violence. Well, very often these negative themes, the violence, euthanasia, um, suicide, these are themes that the author is dealing with critically. And if you read all of the book and don't just um, dip into those particular scenes, what you see is that they're very often speaking against it in the way that they're telling the story. Well, so in this, um, in this particular feature, you see that sense of um, controlling emotions, also controlling color. Did you notice in the first trailer how there was no color up until a certain point until he receives the memories? The people of this community don't see in color. They did away with that ability. And so he starts to begin to be able to see in color. And these other books, the books that follow the giver in this quartet, um, you also have two other villages that are represented. And these two other villages are very different in the utopia, the supposed utopia that's presented there. In Gathering Blue, which is the second book, there's a young woman, a girl about 12 years old, who is in a cruel village that has no tolerance for individual imperfections. She is born crippled, and it's a miracle that she's been allowed to live and not left out to be 
scavenged and um, to die in the field. So in, you, it talks about her journey to change her community, just like Jonas's journey in the first book is a journey to change his community. It's the same thing in the third book. There's a young man in that book who's the main character. And selfishness has crept into a beautiful community in his village. Actually, it really was very nice. And then it started to turn sour. And she, the author, uses him, works through him to change things. So what you see in these three books is that through um, self-sacrifice, through courage and daring, through wisdom um, beyond their years, each one of these main characters works to change what is dis, what is wrong, what is abnormal, what is harmful and painful about their community and to, um, to make that change, which is something neat, something interesting. It invites us into that active role as engaged people in the world around us. I'm going to show you this one um, clip, and it's a little bit repetitive. Please excuse me, but you know how the trailers all show you all the good parts. But I want you to pay attention to the text in this third trailer because I found it interesting. It's exactly what we're talking about today, and so it makes sense to me to show it, even though it repeats some of the other information, so excuse me. From great suffering, great pain, came solutions, communities, where disorder became harmony. The way things look and the way things are are very different. What do you think happened with respect to one intention? I cannot prepare you. dark secret. Very interesting. The title that I gave for our class today is A Perfect World Gone Wrong. Each one, and this is a common characteristic of dystopian societies, each one of the three dystopian communities within Lois Lowry's four books, each one of the, the leaders of the communities believes that they are creating a utopia when in fact all is wrong. Their ideals are skewed. So this is one of the values of this kind of dystopian novel and it often um, tags into where we might be at a, at a certain point in our lives, especially, I don't know if you feel this way, the youth that are in the room. If you look at your parents sometimes and you say, sorry parents, you say you're not as perfect as you think you are. Or perhaps there's an image in the world we're all about projecting images this day and age with Facebook, with these curate how other people view you. And, um, and, as, and as children growing up in homes, we know our parents are not perfect. Um, and that's one of the great things as parents, to be able to admit to your children you're not perfect 
is good. It doesn't lessen your authority. In fact, it gives, um, it gives power to your Christian witness. So I would encourage you in that. But as a youth growing up in the family, it could feel like the emperor has no clothes. I thought this when I was a very young girl. My father's a minister, and he is the first to admit he's not perfect. Um, but there's something about when you start to read your own press, you know, people in the church, oh, you're all so well-behaved, and you sit in the front pew. How do you do that with all four of you? And you poor things. Your father can never sit with you during the service. And people would idealize us. And if you start to believe that, what other people think about you when they're idealizing you, uh, you're going to find yourself in some trouble. And I just knew that was not the case. And I thought, if they only knew. I mean, we're, we, I grew up in a very loving, very gracious home, and I am... Totally thankful for that. But I was the first person to know that my parents were not perfect. And for a little while, as a nine-year-old, I was so upset that they were not perfect. And I got mad, and, and it was okay, thankfully. But that was one of the things for me in going into ministry was to know my father is not perfect as a, as a minister. That's okay. That means that um, there's hope for me. I don't have to be perfect to be even a minister, to get ordained. So that can be encouraging to our children to know that we are not perfect, even though we are trying. We are trying to work towards that ideal that we have in Scripture. So what is it within us as human beings that desires this perfection, that works for it, that will um, try to make it happen no matter what? Well, there are corporately failed utopias all throughout human history. I mean, just think about any revolution that ever used violence to topple an imperfect government only to set up another imperfect government. A perfect example of this, of course, is the French Revolution. One look at history and you think, oh no, not again. They're going to try to scrap it and start over. There was, um, when I was in seminary, there was this community in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, of all places, which is a depressed steel town in western Pennsylvania outside of Pittsburgh, and that's where Trinity School for Ministry is. There in that town, just a couple blocks from one of the apartments I lived in, was this old um, little village from the 19th century called Old Economy Village. It was like Old Sturbridge Village, but it was really cool. You know, they had bellows and all the old things that people used to do in the 19th century. And I had this dream that while I was in seminary, it didn't end up working out, but I daydreamed about getting to work as a docent there. I thought that would be a really fun day job while I was in seminary to make a little money on the side because you would get to wear the 19th century costume. You know, isn't this like me, right, Peter? You would have to memorize all these historical facts. You'd get to learn while you were doing it. You would create this whole world and bring these people into this world. Well, I didn't do it, unfortunately, but Old Economy Village was a religious community. It was a utopian society set up by the Rappites, a Lutheran religious group that came to the New World from Germany to start over, to create their own utopia. And, do you know, they did pretty well for a while, but their community regulation about celibacy, total celibacy, even if you were married, meant that they didn't really reproduce themselves very well, <laughs> and they died out. And that story has been repeated throughout the 18th and 19th century. Our new world, as it is, this um, broad expanse that caused people following the Great Awakening and the religious revival during the 18th century, and then the Enlightenment stress on human involvement in civic 
and political life that we can do it. We have this goodness within us that will allow us to prevail over the dark forces in the world. We will create the perfect society. And that bled into the transcendental movement in the 19th century where you have people camping out at Walden Pond in Massachusetts and um, living off of the land and being very romantic about all that's good in nature. Well, all of this unbridled optimism meant that these different groups did end up failing. So if there's a utopian community, one person defines a utopian community as a group of people who are attempting to establish a new social pattern based upon a vision of the ideal society and who have withdrawn themselves from the community at large to embody that vision in experimental form. So of course there are shakers, monasteries, the Oneida community, all sorts of other communities all over. And what are those attempts to do? What are those attempts to start over really at the base of them? I would say, if I'm going to be a, I'm no psychoanalyst, but here I go anyway. If I were to say what that is, it reminds me of a saying from the 12-step program about pulling a geographic. That if you could just, there's this, this idea that we tell ourselves that everything in our life would be so much better if only fill in the blank. If only we could start over, it would all be better. If we could just go to a new world that was pristine, that had you know, un, uh, untouched forests and lakelands and all of this wonderful land, if we could just move to Portland, Oregon and settle down and get away from our parents, then everything would be so much better. Well, that is a lie that we tell ourselves, that lie about, well, if I just start over, everything will be better this time because it assumes that all that is wrong in the world exists outside of me. That's the problem, is that we carry around with us our own personal baggage where we go, and we often find ourselves, the, the joke with that saying in the 12-step program is that then we find ourselves doing the same things over and over again. It's like deja vu, the same um, conflicts, the same mistakes end up happening over and over again. Okay, so what do we do with this? Deborah, where are we going? It's so depressing. We've looked at dystopias for four weeks. We're depressed. Where can we go? Well, do we just not try then? Do we just not try as individuals to do our best, to live up to the ideals, even in scripture? Do we resist engaging in government and corporate life, whether it's secular or religious? Do we just um, throw up our hands? Well, no. Of course not. And we'll see why. Well, because... Um, even further back in our history, beyond the failed shakers and rapites and the Anabaptists and medieval monastics and secular governments throughout the world, at the very origin of human history is a utopia. Eden is a perfect world. And we see that in Genesis. Eden is a place where there is no human sin. And we long, all of us, whether we believe in God or not, we long to get back to that place. Our desire for, protect, for perfection is a desire to return to our origins. And we experience this on two levels, on an individual level and on a corporate level. And I would say I see this in um, men, women, and children. I think when I was in school, I thought I was, I was, I had, my identity was so tied up in being able to get straight A's. And so when I was 15 and I got my first B ever, my, my world crumbled. I was no longer the straight-A student that I thought I was, that everybody else ought to know that I was. 
And I, I had this, you know, the, the earth was shifting underneath me. Who was I? What was my life for? What was my purpose? Um, but I think about that too today. You know, as women and men, it might be different. Maybe, um, maybe it's a, too much to generalize, but I feel so protective of my own home. I want everything to be really beautiful in it. And those magazines for a while, really, I love the magazines. I always loved Martha Stewart Living. But now being where all of those magazines came from, the origin of all the beautiful home magazines, Southern Living, oh my gosh, look at those. Um, The different homes that I've seen around here are incredible, make me feel so much less than for my sense of beauty. I have so much to learn. But there is that, and especially I think as women, we can, we can desire to have the perfect home or the perfect appearance when we set out in public, when we go out for the evening. And for, it might not all be all women like this, but it might not be all men that say they want to have the perfect career, that their identity is tied up in that reputation, that resume, in that sense of being able to provide for our families. Well, what happens when there's a fire in your home or you just didn't get a chance to vacuum the floors? Or what happens when, um, against all odds, it's not your fault, but you lose your job and you can no longer provide for your family? What happens when you get that first B? Well, there's this sense of, of pain in that and questioning, who am I? If I'm not that, if I'm not the straight-A student, then who am I? And that's where we look to God, because God gives us a completely different identity in Jesus Christ. We are not who we are on our own. We are actually who we are in Christ, and our imperfections give him glory. Such a hard thing to remember. My dirty floor gives him glory on some level, because it helps someone else say, she's not perfect. I feel so much better. She's just like me. Paul talks about this about the weakness in his flesh that the Lord gave him to keep him from boasting. He says this in his second letter to the Corinthians. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he was receiving, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. The perfection belongs to him. And when we are honest about our weaknesses, the glory goes to him, because then his power is seen so much more clearly through the cracks in our being. And so that helps us as individuals as we go forward, that, that, um, that striving and that anxiety about our own perfection, our own self, um, is at rest in Christ. There is a, an opportunity I had to spend some time with a mentor of mine. When I moved to Massachusetts, I didn't have a place to live. And so my bishop, who is retired, and his wife hosted me at their home for a while, for a kind of embarrassingly long time, actually. And one day, as I was helping them clean up after dinner, because I felt like I needed to pay pay it back, as I was cleaning up after dinner, um, they like to leave everything in the dish rack. Everybody has a different way of doing dishes, is what I've learned. They like to leave the dishes to dry in the dish rack, and they'll dry some of them just to be able to not, not keep it cluttered up. 
But so I was kind of obsessively drying the dishes. And the bishop turned to me and he said, leave it. Just like that, leave it. And do you know, that's the way they talk to their dogs. They have border collies. And their two border collies will obsess. Just like labs obsess over the ball or over licking or something like that. They were obsessing. And I was obsessing about drying the dishes. And he just said, leave it. Stop it. Leave it alone. And we will joke around because he and I are pretty similar. So he, all he has to say to me, if I'm worrying about something, if I'm anxious about something, if I'm anxious especially about where I am not when I perceive that I ought to be somewhere else, when I'm disappointed in myself, he just leave it. Just like he's talking to the dog. And it is so freeing. We are called to cease our striving and be still. And that doesn't mean that we're totally passive and we don't do good things, but it means that when we do do good things, when we step out in faith, when we take action in Christ's name, we are ceasing our striving. We do so without anxiety about our own identity, our own place in the world, about our own sense of perfection, our need for perfection. No, we are still, just like those words in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. We can step out in faith as we take action, knowing that God it, it ha- has our back, that it is in his hands, our own um, perfection, that completion of our salvation, when our flesh is totally, totally perfect, raised to new life, but also corporately, looking ahead to the future. Where is that utopia that we long to go back to? Well, it is coming. God is bringing it. He will bring it. As he says in Revelation, the Revelation to St. John, that new Jerusalem will descend from on high, from heaven down to earth. And we will be there. That place will be infused with glory and holiness. The light and the gold that's described in Revelation is like liquid, vivid, visual holiness. So tangible. It has a color. It has a, a texture. And so we trust God with our future corporately as a society. We trust that he will transform us. And we place ourselves in a position to receive from him the source so that our ideals for what a society should look like are based on his word and not based on our own skewed perceptions. We trust that though we are invited to be a part of this new Jerusalem, though we are invited to be a part of creating it and working alongside God for it, the construction, the burden of the construction for the new Jerusalem is not on our shoulders. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We step out in faith and take action in peace without striving um, to help create that new Jerusalem here on earth, to love each other, to obey, um, but it rests on his shoulders. So let's pray. Oh dear Lord God, we entrust to you our future as individuals and as a body, as the body of Christ and as a, a, even a secular nation, Lord, would you um, transform us? We know that you will at the last day. And yet give us, give us eyes to see where we can make small inroads, where we can humbly and without anxiety and without a sense of our own identity serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.